Thank you, Pastor Bill. Yes, all the way from Zambia. Uh, pinch me. We're moving to the forum. If you've just stepped in, uh, they say you have to say these things six times before people actually understand it, okay? So I'm going to say it again, and you're going you're gonna to hear it over and over again for the next week. First Sunday in the forum is the 19th of October. Uh, next Sunday, right after this service, we need 40 people to help us move those chairs downstairs because that will enable the contractor to set up scaffolding to begin uh, demolition. Uh, so the 19th in the forum, the 12th moving chairs, the 18th will be a big rehearsal on Saturday morning beginning at 7 a.m., over at the Montreal Forum. I will also tell you that all the adults will be meeting in the AVX Theater right on the ground, main floor there, uh, 515 seats, the largest cineplex in the province of Quebec. So I hope you're getting excited about that transition. Uh, before we go any further, I wanted to thank you, uh, this congregation, for so much support of our little team, Zambia, uh, that got back to Montreal safely on Tuesday night, very late, and uh, very tired, I think. I see Pauline in the back there. Wave your hand. Uh, you don't look tanned, Pauline. I mean, they don't think we did any work because we don't look tanned. Uh, that's all of the sunscreen and all of the DEET uh, that we had to wear there in, uh, in the western province of Zambia. But thank you so much for your support, your prayers, your giving. Uh, toward the team, uh, there were some dozen or 15 people that contributed towards supporting this team and sending them uh, well over $7,000 came in just to send the team, uh, not to mention the 20000 that this congregation gave for phase one of Reimagine to help build a house uh, that will serve the orphans of that community. I'll mention more about this later on, but I wanted to start by by thanking the congregation. We've been talking about this, uh, this theme of trending over the last number of weeks and uh, trends in the culture. What does the Bible say about them? Does the Bible address them? And the trend that we'll be looking at today isn't so much in behavior, but it's in the way that people think. Uh, and it's uh, phrased this way uh, most of the time. There can't just be one true religion. There can't just be one true religion. This is an objection that people raise whenever there's some type of exclusive truth claim uh, in matters of religion. We don't only see this trend in the present culture. It's something that's in cultures uh, uh, in Western civilization for years, generations. This is a huge objection to the Christian faith. And uh, one of the, the strongest passages uh, that's attacked uh, is the one that we're going to read uh, from Jesus. John chapter 14 and uh, verses 1 to 6. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably gotten familiar with this passage. If not, uh, it's a magnificent statement he makes here. So he's talking to his followers, and this is uh, getting close to the time where Jesus will die on the cross. And he says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There can't just be one true religion. Uh, The title of our message today is borrowed uh, from a book written by a pastor in New York City named Timothy Keller. And he writes very effectively on the subject. The name of his book is The Reason for God. I would recommend it to you. Uh, This statement from Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is a perfectly objective and exclusive statement, isn't it? You can look at it logically, and it's objective, and it's exclusive. Way exists, truth exists, life exists, and there's only one way you get it, through me. No one but through me. Exclusive and objective. So this this trend, there can't just be one true religion. It kind of manifests itself in different faces uh, and phrases in the culture. If you're a, a Christ follower in this room, you no doubt have heard one of these, if not all three of them. If you are not a Christ follower in this room, and I see your faces, you're trying to blend in so no one notices you, that you're contemplating what you're hearing, or maybe you're here because there's a nice girl here, I'm not sure, but you're thinking about what you're hearing. If so, you are probably thinking some of these things, if not all three. Number one, that's so close-minded. So close-minded, how can you make a statement that your religion is the only way to God and that it's true and all the other ones out there are false? So close-minded, you need to broaden your horizons and see the world a little bit that is incredibly close-minded, you're thinking. Uh, The problem here, first and foremost, is that Jesus is making a truth statement. He's making an objective truth statement. Either he's right or he's wrong. It's one or the other. And the trouble with objective truth is by nature it is exclusive. By nature it excludes all other claims about the same thing that don't say it the same way. It excludes them. So I will demonstrate for you an objective truth that's taking place in your lives right now as I speak. In my life as well, it's taking place. You can't argue with it. You can't say it doesn't exist. Go ahead and try. It will still happen to you. In fact, it's happening to every single object on the planet. Gravity. You and I are accelerating toward the mass of the earth at a measurable rate, 9.8 meters per second squared. Those of you who have taken any Newtonian physics, you know this to be true. 
Go home and take a little pea in your hand and take an apple in your hand and drop them at the same time and you will see that they land on the ground at precisely the same time. Why? Because the truth applies to them as well. Every object in the, on this planet is accelerating toward this planet. And the only thing that will stop us from going any further is things like chairs and floors and, and all of that. And if someone comes around and says, no, it doesn't work that way for me, I'm accelerating at 9.4 meters per second squared, they would be wrong. Because 9.8 meters per second squared has excluded them. So truth by nature, objective truth by nature, by definition, it is exclusive. Uh, Two plus two is four. You all in the camp that say it's five, you can say that all you want. But if I look at two bags here and two bags here, guess what? It makes four. And that's exclusive. It's exclusive, objective truth. So unfair, so close-minded. The problem is that when we approach matters of religion and faith and spirituality, we say, well, that's easy. You can say it exists in the physical world. Truth does, but it doesn't exist in the spiritual world. Nobody can prove any of that. Is that really true? Or is that an assumption based on something else? Uh, People will come and say, well, don't all religions lead to the same God? Uh, When we were over in Zambia, the the very last day before we got on the plane uh, in Lusaka, we spent a night and half of a day in the largest game park in Zambia. And we saw elephants, you know, up close and personal. And the old adage of, well, if you close your eyes and you take six people and they all touch the elephant and they've never seen an elephant, they're all going to write about it in different ways. And these are all the religions of the world and they all lead to the same God. Have you ever studied any of the religions of the world? They all say different things. All those roads are all different. So you take one example. Jesus in the Bible is presented as being God. Nowhere else but in the pages of the Bible will you see that. You won't see that in the Quran. You won't see that in the Eastern religions of the world, the other philosophies, faith systems, cults, what have you. Only the Bible will present him as God. To others, he may be a a prophet or a priest or a man or a rabbi or a teacher or a created being. But in the Bible, he's presented as God. So can both be right? How can both be right? One has to be right, one has to be wrong. Or maybe they're all wrong, but they can't all be right. All religions don't teach the same thing. One could argue that the statement that it's closed-minded to think that there could be one religious truth out there is in and of itself a very closed-minded statement. Uh, There's no objective truth except the truth that there's no objective truth. Just made an objective truth, didn't we? I would argue that I'm so open-minded that one could be right and by implication all the rest could be wrong. I'm that open-minded Jesus made a claim. Is his claim correct or is his claim incorrect? That's the issue at hand. The astounding thing about Jesus is he's left us a glorious piece of evidence behind his resurrection from the dead. And we will celebrate that at the end of the service through communion. 
This is the argument that you will see in the scripture over and over and over again. The whole thing rises or falls on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Paul, in his, in his, uh, his presentation in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, this is Jesus, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The whole thing rises or falls on the resurrection. Did it happen or did it not happen? Paul says to the Corinthians, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and after that to more than 500 of the people at the same time. Most of whom are still living at the time that Paul wrote, though some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles And last of all, he appeared to me also. He's basing his argument on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. He continues, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we're liars, we're false witnesses about God. We testify that God raised Jesus from the dead, but he didn't raise him if the dead aren't raised. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. Those who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope, we're to be pitied beyond all men, he says. He's hinging it all on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You can take that fact and you can pass it through the rules of uh, of legal evidence, of historical evidence, and you will find to your your surprise that it stands up over and over again. There have been people throughout the ages who have tried to challenge it, tried to rewrite it, tried to change it, and yet it keeps coming up the same way. The nagging fact of history that this world must deal with is Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Either you will reject it or you will receive it, one or the other. But you can't take it and say that it didn't happen. We have a man who is dead, who is in a tomb. The tomb was empty and the man was seen alive. What do we do with that? Maybe his claim to being way and truth and life is true after all. And if he did rise from the dead, I tell you that claim is true. And by nature, it's an objective claim, and by nature, it therefore excludes. Is that close-minded? Well, maybe it is. But I would argue again, I'm so open-minded that I'm open to even that possibility that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Second way that this argument can be phrased, that's so arrogant, So arrogant, you Christians run around saying that your religion is better than everybody else's. You're better, you're more holy, you're more intelligent, you have the truth, everybody else doesn't. And you run around making these arrogant claims. I remember a man who I used to work with in the marketplace and we were talking about the afterlife. And I told him, I said, I believe when I die I'm going to heaven. 
And his jaw opened and he said, that's so arrogant. How can you, of all people, make the claim that you will go to heaven when you die? Maybe I was a bit of a scoundrel, I don't know. But he found it to be such an arrogant confidence that I had. And the problem with this view, that's so arrogant, is that it's not necessarily directed toward what Jesus said. His statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's either true or it's false. You don't see it peppered with arrogance. It's either true or it's false, one or the other. So why this, why this phrase that's so arrogant? It's not necessarily because of what Jesus said. It's because of the way sometimes his followers behave. And when we run around with an air of superiority, and when we get our eyes off of the, off of the truth, Jesus is God, he rose from the dead, and we start to concoct something that makes us better than everybody else, then people turn around and they say that's so arrogant. In some ways, they can be right. Do we see this in the scripture? Do we see that this is what Jesus told people to be, arrogant? If anything, we see the opposite. In strong language, uh, Acts chapter 4, one example at the beginning of the history of the, of the church, we see Peter and John perform a great miracle of healing out in the open square, out in the public for everybody to see. And they do it by the authority of Jesus of Nazareth. And they make this claim in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven. That's pretty wide scope. Given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when the people saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who was healed standing right there in front of them, there's nothing they could say. The guy's standing right there. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, that's the legal authority of the day, and then conferred together. Sanhedrin says, well, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a great miracle. No one can deny it. We can't even deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. If there's any arrogance, I would suggest it's from the Sanhedrin, not from Peter and John. They called them in again and commanded them not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? They're talking to religious people to listen to you or to listen to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help about speaking what we have seen, what we have heard. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Again, if there's any arrogance, it's on the part of the Sanhedrin. Just witness a man healed who had been crippled uh, for years and years, and then they want to stop it, and then they want to squash it out and stop it from continuing. That's arrogance. Peter and John are saying, look, we're going to keep talking. We're going to keep talking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Philippians chapter 2, the great, great passage on the humility of Jesus and how Christians are to follow that example. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being 
being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, arrogance. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Teaching humility there. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Anything but arrogance is stated there. The problem with it is that it can develop over time. And you have arrogance and superiority that can transform itself into something else. And this is why we get the third face and phrase of this objection. That's so dangerous. You believing that your truth is the only truth has led you to become arrogant and that arrogance has turned into a, 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 a disdain, a persecution of other faiths. That's so dangerous and people shout and rightly so. Isn't religion the cause of all the wars that we see in the world? A claim that is mostly true. When, when, a, when a truth claim is made and it turns into superiority and arrogance, it can become violent and it can turn into persecution of other people. Turn on the television, what do we see? A place in the world where two nations are being forced to convert to a religious ideology. And if they, and if they do not convert to it, they kill them. This is what we see in the television every day. And it, it turns our stomachs to look at it and watch it happen. Uh, but this is the reality that we see. Now, I'll put it on the table uh, here. We need to be very, very careful. Just as an aside, uh, I have had Muslim neighbors for the last decade. Uh, I get along very, very well with them. I've had great conversations with them. I've taught a course on Islam in this church. Uh, they're very friendly people, very peace-loving people. Uh, be careful that you don't paint people with all the same brush. Uh, the major contention that I always have with my Muslim uh, neighbors is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject it, I accept it. And that's where the difference lies. Uh, and that's where we debate and where we discuss. Uh, but I can tell you they're very, very friendly people. Uh, you don't need to, to, to twist things around in your mind and start painting people with one evil brush. To be sure, there is a segment there that uses bits and pieces from the Quran and the Hadith and the other so-called authoritative texts of Islam, and they turn it into violence, and they turn it into persecution of other people. To be sure, that happens. But don't paint people all with the same brush. We look at it in its stomach turning. We say, religion, look what it does. But we need to be honest, and it's so rarely discussed in, in churches uh, but we need to be honest that this, this charge of danger, when it's directed toward the church, it is not directed without reason and without thought. Because if we're honest, even in the history of Christendom, we do see acts uh, that, that justify this charge. And it, it gives me pain to say it, but we do see it. There have been people in history who have claimed to be Christ followers who have done the total opposite and persecuted other people uh, using their, their understanding, uh, which is a false one. 
And I'll give you one example just to, just to explain it to you uh, uh, from one particular perspective. And this would be within the first four centuries of church history. In the book of Acts, we see that uh, the, the very, very first believers were all Jewish people. Until around the chapter 10, chapter 11, something remarkable happens and, and the people learn and understand that God accepts all kinds of people, not just Jewish people. And you should all be thankful because none of you in here are Jewish. Or most of you aren't, I don't think so. I may be the only, the only black sheep here, okay, I'm not sure. Uh, but God accepts everybody by grace, through faith. And the early church had learned this. In fact, the big debate in the early church in the book of Acts is, well, what do we do with all these Gentiles? They don't know anything. The men aren't circumcised. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know anything. They don't know Jehovah. But look, they're being baptized in the Holy Spirit. God accepts them. This is a remarkable thing, and it's a big debate in the book of Acts. And the early followers of Christ, they would debate strongly. Peter and John and Paul and these people, they would debate strongly. God has accepted these people. And we need to understand that God accepts people by faith, through grace. doesn't matter their ethnic background, their religious background. But that would begin to change over time. Views would change somewhat. By the end of the first century, we have 100,000 new believers in Christ who are not Jewish. 100,000 of them just in the 100 years. And you've got about 6 million uh, Jewish people in the Roman Empire, most of them not followers of Christ. So big, big difference. By the end of the second century, those two numbers would be the same. The growth in the church was explosive in the first 200 years of, of uh, history after Jesus had risen from the dead. You've got millions upon millions of new believers in Christ, not Jewish people, and yet you have six, seven million Jewish people also in the Roman Empire. Problem is that the Romans had a law. If any religion predated them, they would tolerate it. Judaism predated them, they tolerated it. But Christianity, viewed as this new sect, as we read in the book of Acts, they looked at and they didn't want to tolerate it. It was new. And so the, this, this, these new believers would turn to their, their Jewish counterpart and say, well, we came from you, support us. And of course they'd say, well, no, we don't agree. Uh, a large amount of the Jewish people around the world reject the deity of Christ. And so they said, no, we, we don't agree. You're not the same as we are. And so the persecution would begin toward that new church. We, we read about it even as early as the book of Acts, the book of Revelation, and we can read about it through history. And so animosity would begin to grow. Well, they didn't help us. And you see not so much violence and persecution, but you see the early writings of some of the church fathers within the first four centuries of Christianity had some pretty nasty things to say uh, about the Hebrew people. Uh, Augustine, whose remarks are still used today, wrote a very famous tract called Against the Jews. A very significant. His counterpart, John Chrysostom, would write that the Jews were guilty of the murder of Jesus. And so to be a good Christian, you must hate the Jewish people. Lest we think that these views have gone away, I can tell you that they're still very much alive today. I can tell you by growing up in the Jewish culture that they're taught to fear Christians. Christians are dangerous. They want to convert you. They want you to become born again. They want you to attend their church. And for goodness sake, don't marry a Gentile one of them. Well, I did all of that. <laughs> the whole thing. 
So, uh, you know, and, and not, not to mention I'm a preacher. So, you know, they're sort of the black sheep of the family. But is this what the Bible says? I only give it to you as one example. Is this what the Bible says? Should the culture, should the world fear believers? Should we be looked at as dangerous and the cause of wars and animosity? If anything, the scripture is, is the total opposite on this matter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The admonition from Peter in his day in a hostile environment already. He was writing to Christians who were already starting to experience persecution from Rome with gentleness and respect. A non-Christian person in this room, again, you're, you're in there somewhere and you're, you're evaluating. Can I tell you, it is not a good enough excuse for you to reject Jesus because of one of his followers. It's not a good enough excuse. Gandhi used that excuse. I would become a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. It's not a good enough excuse. If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and he has risen from the dead, you must come face to face with him and make your decision. Either you accept him or you reject him one or the other, but don't blame your decision on one of his followers. It's not a good enough excuse. He is objective truth. Don't get clouded by a bad experience with a person who called himself a believer. It's not a good enough excuse. You need to be confronted with Jesus in the end and Jesus alone and make your decision. Believers in this room, be careful. Like it or not, whether you find it fair or not, whether you find it just or not, Jesus is being evaluated by the way you live your life. You are their Jesus, you are their God for all intents and purposes. How are you living your life? Are you living it in a way that repels people, not only from you, but from Jesus? Or are you living it in a way that attracts people to the Jesus who lives in you and in me. Do this with gentleness and respect. As we finish up today, a word needs to be said about this word religion. We've said there can't just be one true religion. Uh, this word causes some, uh, some ab abrasive emotion in, in the minds of people. It kind of has two definitions. There's the way that the culture defines religion, and there's the way that the scripture defines religion, and I find that the two are very different. In the culture, religion means do things and your God will save you. Pay your taxes on time, be faithful to your spouse, find a senior and walk them across the street, volunteer in your community, if it's a church, get baptized, become a member. Become a Sunday school teacher. If it's some other faith, knock on the door and tell them of your God, whoever he or she or it is. And if you do all those things enough, and if you work hard enough, then maybe, just maybe, your God will accept you. This is religion as defined in the mind of the culture. It's interesting the way the Bible defines religion. 
You won't find the word too often in the New Testament, but one notable place is from James, the half-brother of Jesus. Fascinating words he has. Those who consider themselves religious, James chapter 1, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Quite a contrast, isn't it? So for the Christ follower, we're saved by grace. God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and has died on the cross as a penalty for our sin, a substitute for us. He has done the work. We simply need to receive him, to believe that he has done it and to receive him into our lives. There's no amount of work that we can do to earn it. And in turn, when that happens, we begin to change. And we begin to do things to disperse grace to other people. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Beautifully put. In the, in the Mutoya camp, a hill in the city of Mongu, Zambia, where we were for 10 days. Uh, a, a city of sand. It's all sand there and the sand turns your skin black. It's not like a beach. Okay, we weren't on the beaches. We saw things and experienced things that brought this passage into living color. We went there to help construct a house that's part of uh, a little complex of four houses for orphans. Uh, This church paid for that house and paid for the people who built it. In fact, uh, we were more of a hindrance to those workers than a help in terms of our skills at masonry. We learned that very quickly as we were carrying the bricks and crying out in pain uh, after 45 minutes in 40 degree heat. So we learned that very quickly. Uh, But we got to know them. And we got to talk with them and share with those builders, all local Zambians, some of them not even believers. And uh, we cooked for them. We cooked a nice meal for them. Down in our chalet, down the hill, about 10 minutes. You have to walk about a 30, 40 degree incline up the hill, the sand, uh, with the food, you know, when we're carrying the food and we gave it to them. They were overjoyed that they got to eat a, a meal that they didn't have to cook. And we watched things well beyond the building of that house. Uh, The village of Hope, comprised of four houses, is part of a much bigger work there. The Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada is on the ground with the village of Hope, with the Pentecostal Assemblies of God, uh, many people from South Africa serving there, many volunteers, young people uh, working their hearts out. And what we saw there, the the average uh, life expectancy for children, three-fifths, three out of five children will die before the age of five in the western province of Zambia. 60% won't make it past their fifth birthday. The average lifespan is 28. 28 years old. When we went to their church, we saw all these young people, and then a massive gap, 30, 40 years, and we saw a few very senior people 
But there was a whole generation of people missing because their lives were taken. Teenage pregnancy is through the roof. Malnutrition, through the roof. Illiteracy, breakdown of the family, uh, status of women, uh, the religious views there. All kinds of obstacles, one after the other after the other. And we saw one of the buildings there at the site called the Save a Life Center. It's like a clinic slash mini hospital where these little infants, tiny little infants, premature, malnourished. In many cases, their mothers had died during childbirth because they themselves were malnourished. Brought to that place and in many cases brought back to health. And in many cases, living as orphans and living at one of those houses, one of them which this church has built, or two-thirds of it built by this church. And we watched and we saw story after story of young person who should have been in the grave, that were beginning to thrive in life, beginning to learn about God. We watched a school of 250 children We watched as not only were they taught, but they were fed. We watched widows being fed. We went into the homes, the reed huts and the mud huts, and watched as little infants were being monitored to make sure that they were fed. It's true religion. It's the gospel in action. It's exactly what the scripture declares here. When your life is changed by grace, you turn and you pour out grace to other people. There can't just be one true religion, we're told. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has risen from the dead. We are confronted with him. And we will be until the day he returns or the day that we go to meet him. I'm going to pray and then hand it over to Pastor Bill. And he's going to lead us in a time of acknowledgement, the Lord's Supper, communion, where we acknowledge these things uh, through symbols and uh, the, the bread and the juice that we will take together. Father, we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us, how this simple statement of Jesus, not very long, but so powerful, so well known, so thought about, so challenged. Uh, uh, so challenging, so convicting to us. Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christ followers in the room. May we be people who share our faith with gentleness and with respect. May we tell people of Jesus and that he is risen from the dead. May people see Jesus through our lives and our words and our behavior. I pray for those, God, who are contemplating, those who are thinking about it. May they be confronted by you, Jesus, and you alone. Lord, I pray that they would draw closer to you through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.